0: Coming together on retreat is always a special time in our lives because it's leaving the busyness and the distractions and the diversions of our daily lives, and it's entering into a whole different realm. We enter into a realm of silence, of depth, of solitude. And what most characterizes this realm of silence is a tremendous immediacy of experience precisely because we're not distracting ourselves. We really come face to face with who we are. Our Dharma practice and our meditation practice is this amazingly skillful means for looking at and discovering the nature of our own minds and bodies, the nature of how we create suffering for ourselves and others in the world, and also for discovering the possibilities and the experience of a genuine and deep happiness and freedom. As you all know, and especially clearly after the first day of a meditation retreat that this discovery, this exploration is not an easy task. As I mentioned this morning, it's simple, it's not complicated, but it's not easy. We have such strong habits of judging and comparing of getting lost in past, getting lost in future. And all of this is very obvious after even just one day of sitting. It really takes a very strong commitment and a certain kind of passion in order to come out of these habituated patterns of our minds and our lives. It takes a lot to wake up. One of the first insights of insight meditation, and this is kind of a money-back guarantee, (laughs) because I know that you have all had this insight, even in just these few hours, and that is the awareness the the personal recognition of how often our minds wander. Has anybody not seen that? (laughs) I mean, it's really quite astounding how difficult it is to stay present, how often we don't know what's going on. I think we tend to underestimate the value of this insight But most people in the world, I think, are not aware of this about their own minds. You go up to somebody in the street and ask them, does your mind wander? (laughs) "Mm, No, no, I know what I'm doing. Because unless we take the time, unless we sit down and actually turn our attention inwards, we don't know, because we're not paying attention. And yet as soon as we do, it becomes so obvious The mind is so slippery. You know, we've given it a very simple task watch the breath. (laughs) And it's not, you know, we're not trying to visualize a mandala with a hundred thousand deities of different colors. Just the breath, in, out, in, out. And yet we're with a breath or two or three, if we're lucky. And then the mind's off, it gets seduced. You know, by our thoughts and feelings and stories, by plans, by memories. And what's so ironic in a way is that what seduces us doesn't even have to be pleasant. <laughs> you know, we get lost in and we relive so many of our old arguments and hurts and difficulties. I and mean, how much of today was spent, you know, in that kind of mental rehashing. And perhaps even more surprising, we get lost over and over again in imaginary anticipated hurts. Things that actually haven't happened yet, but we think will happen and we sit here worrying about what it will be like when this and this happens. So this is the habit of our mind. And you know, we do it again and again. Mark Twain really captured it, as he does so many things with his humor and wit, when he said, "Most, how do say, some of the worst things in my life never happened." <laughs> yeah. And I've just seen that in myself and watching, you know, this, this habit of anticipation the Buddha spoke very directly to the importance of seeing this about our minds and beginning to undertake a training he said your worst enemy cannot harm you as much as your unguarded thoughts but once mastered not even your mother or father or those closest to you can help you as much as a mind that is tamed. It's a very direct pointing to the source of happiness in our lives. Our worst enemy cannot harm us as much as our own unguarded mind, because our mind just takes off and creates all kinds of problems. And yet no one can give us as much happiness or peace or freedom Not even the people that love us the most can bring us as much happiness as the mind that is tamed, as the mind that is understood. So this first insight into how our minds work, the fact that it is in the habit of getting distracted again and again, of getting lost (coughs) over and over. Our insight into this brings us to one very important realization, and that is the importance of stabilizing our awareness, stabilizing our attention. Because it's not only even that we're simply lost in the wanderings of our mind. I mean, that would be distressing enough. But very often, we're acting these thoughts and feelings out. You know, when we look at the suffering in the world and all the many places of great suffering, you know, of conflict and war and violence and what is it that's really happening? It's people acting out thoughts and feelings of fear, of hatred, of greed, of desire. All the actions have this source in people's minds. And it's not only out there. You know, when we look at our own lives and our own relationships, the problems, the difficulties, the suffering comes from our not understanding the forces at work within ourselves. And so this is the great gift of the Dharma, the great gift of practice, that we begin to take a look and see. One of the first things, my my first teacher in a uh, Kamala's teacher, also Munindraji, said to me when I went to India, this was back in 1967, and it hooked me because it was so direct and so common sense. He said, If you want to understand your mind, sit down and observe it. I mean, it was that simple. There wasn't any big ritual, nothing to join. <laughs> If you want to understand your mind, sit down and observe it. How else could we understand our minds? So this is the work that needs to be done and that what we're all doing here together. So the question is, how do we observe our minds? How do we stay awake? Because it's not easy. The essence of the training that we're undertaking is first recognizing and then stabilizing one very simple and basic quality of mind. And it's a quality or an attribute of mind that has been called different things in different traditions. It's been called mindfulness. It's been called bare attention. It's been called Naked awareness, it's been called innate wakefulness. In the different Buddhist traditions and in others as well, each one has its own particular name, but it's the same quality. It's naked and bare in that it's an awareness that is very direct and not interfering and not judging and not interpreting and not making stories about the simplicity of our direct experience. It's just with things as they are. In one sense, that's the meaning of Vipassana, seeing things as they are, seeing things clearly. Another one of Munindra's wonderful teaching lines, which points to how simple the practice is. He said, if you sit and know you're sitting, the whole of the Dharma will be revealed. So if ever the instructions get too complicated, you know, and you don't know what to do, and the mind is getting confused, sit and know you're sitting. That's all. In that presence of mind, if we can sustain it, if we can stabilize it, if we can be steady in it, we sit and we know we're sitting, the whole of the Dharma is revealed to us. In the beginning of our training, in the beginning, it can be the first 50 years or so, <laughs> we need to make an effort to be mindful because it's not our habit. Our habit is much more to be distracted And so we make the effort to connect with the experience of each moment, to connect with each breath, each step. And we return again and again every time we're lost. So with the breath, we start wandering, we come back. With the breath, we start wandering, we come back. And it's that effort of coming back. And this training is one that's in all of the Buddhist traditions and in many spiritual traditions, Tulku Ergin, who was one of the great Dzogchen masters of the last century, and some of us have studied with him, this is, this is one of his teachings. He said, There is one thing we always need, and that is the watchman named mindfulness, the guard who is on the lookout for when we get carried away in mindlessness. You know, So even in this great you know, non-dual Tibetan teaching, It comes back to something that's very necessary. We need to be mindful so that we're aware when our mind is off, when our mind is distracted. Because if we're not, we simply stay lost in the wanderings of our minds. So This quality of mindfulness, of bare attention, is so important. It's not only in Buddhism. It's really the basis of many spiritual endeavors. This is from a Catholic saint who was a spiritual guide, a French spiritual guide, St. Francis of Sales. He said, If the heart wanders or is distracted, bring it back to the point quite gently. And even if you did nothing during the whole of your hour, but bring your heart back, even though it went away, every time you brought it back, your hour would be very well employed. So does that practice sound familiar to you? (laughs) Bring the heart back, and even if it went away every time you brought it back, the hour would be well employed. Because that's the training. It is going to wander, and we practice coming back, and we practice coming back. Slowly, something begins to happen. As the mindfulness and the concentration get stronger, these qualities increasingly seem to flow on by themselves. It's not so much effort. It's not so much struggle. That we get into a certain rhythm of attentiveness, a certain momentum of mindfulness, and it's like a stream of awareness that carries us. And this comes from having made the effort. So the effort leads to effortlessness. It's sort of like learning to ride a bike. I don't know if you remember back, but you know, in the beginning when we're just learning, kind of holding on so tight Holding on tight didn't really help. But it's what somehow we needed to do until we found the balance. And then as soon as we find the balance, we can relax. You know, and it becomes much more effortless. And for some really skilled people, they even ride without any hands on the bars. Well, this process of holding on, of struggle, finding balance, relaxing... That's like a spiral that keeps happening at different levels in our practice. So we work with the breath, and we struggle at first and really try to hold on tight, and that helps us in a way to find the balance. We find the balance, then we relax. becomes more effortless. We're at ease. And then we come up against something that's more difficult. Maybe it's some pain in the body or some emotional difficulty. And then we reach a new level of intensity And we go through the same process again. We struggle, we try to hold on or make the strong effort to be mindful, then we find the balance and we relax, we settle back. And in this way our mind slowly over time gets more and more expansive, more and more able to hold a greater and greater range of experience with ease and with openness. The last stage in this development, which, again, keeps spiraling, keeps cycling through, is when we have the insight or we come to the understanding that the very nature of the mind is awareness. That it's not something we have to create. It's not something we have to do. It's not any effort that really needs to be made because it is the very nature of our minds, this knowing, cognizing faculty. So when we recognize that, through having gone through these various stages, then we really can relax into this openness, into this ease of knowing. But always with a quality of mindfulness so that when the mind does wander, we see it and we simply come back again. That's our training. In all of these stages of practice, we're really learning uh, with greater and greater sophistication and depth what the meaning of balance is. It's the balance, you could say, of yin and yang of receptive mind and active mind. It's the balance of doing and non-doing. You can see that with the breath. Sometimes, sometimes it requires kind of the energy of an active, okay, I'm going to be with it, I'm going to focus on it, I'm going to hold my attention there. And sometimes the balance comes from non-doing, from simply settling back and letting the breath appear naturally. Resting in that natural awareness. So we work with the balance. Active and receptive. Doing and non-doing. Awake, alert, and relaxed. Somewhat like listening to music. And when you are when you really in a, a space, a comfortable space, and you put on your favorite music and it's quiet, and you're really interested, it's not just background music, You're really there to listen. What's the quality of your mind like at that time? It's really a very good example, an easy access to finding the balance. Because when we're listening to music, you're probably not leaning into it (laughs) in order to hear it better, no. We're just settled back. We're receptive. And at the same time, we're present. We're alert. Because if our mind's wandering, we're not hearing the music. And so that's a way of understanding exactly what this balance is. We're present. We're alert. We're relaxed. And then it's heard effortlessly. So now... Can we be with the breath in the same way that we listen to music? That's the art of the practice. Where we're just listening. I don't mean listening to the sound of the breath. But it's that quality of listening, of just being there. Mother Teresa was asked by an interviewer what she says when she what she says to God when she prays. I don't say anything, she replied. I just listen. So the interviewer asked her what God says to her. This is her language. He doesn't say anything, said Mother Teresa. He just listens. (laughs) And then she added, if you don't understand that, I can't explain it to you. (laughs) But it's a wonderful image, isn't it, of just listening, listening to listening, (laughs) and there's just that space of listening and being with the truth of what presents itself. This is really our practice, it's learning how to listen in that way, at that depth. So there are a few tools that help us listen, you know, that really can help train us to listen in that way, and Kamal and Carol mentioned a couple of them briefly last night. A very big help on retreat, and it's it's really a gift of the retreat is in slowing down. Because usually in our lives, you know most of us lead pretty busy, active, hectic lives in a rush. slowing down, physically, slowing down, just moving more slowly really helps to drop back into the moment. But it's important to do it with understanding because sometimes people here slow down and they energetically they get into the space of kind of holding themselves back, like reining in, in horses. That's not it. It's not that we're trying to hold ourselves back or restrain our energy. That's very tiring. Slowing down in the meditative sense, is not holding ourselves back. It's settling back into the moment. It's just settling back with ease. It's very relaxed. And what helps us to do this is the quality of interest. If we're really interested in what's happening, we will slow down and pay attention. Georgia O'Keeffe was describing, she was describing the art of listening, but she talked about it in terms of seeing. She was a great artist. So she said, still in a way, nobody sees a flower, really. It is so small. We have in time, and to see takes time have a friend takes time mostly we're rushing through our lives and we're not taking the time to see the small flowers we want to see the small flowers of our experience the moments of our experience just as a very simple example and maybe we can do it together because I think I think it will give you a sense of what I'm talking about. Just now, if you would, just move your arm at a reasonably fast pace. And, And be aware that you're moving. Okay. So that's not difficult. You know you're moving, right? You know you're moving your arm. And you feel something. Okay. Now move it a little slower. And instead of simply feeling or knowing that you're moving, really feel the sensations of the movement. So move more slowly and feel the sensations all through the arm or the fingertips of the hand. And when we move slowly and feel the sensations of the movement as opposed to simply knowing we're moving, there's another whole world that opens up. It's like we drop down a level Well, there is a world of this energy system of our mind and body that only reveals itself when we slow down and take the time to listen to it. One of the things that was so inspiring in Burma, about practicing in Burma at the monasteries, and it was really a tremendous inspiration, was to see the Burmese yogis sort of move about during the retreat as they would go from one place to another or do the walking. And for the most, not everybody, but for the most part, they moved with such care and such meticulousness. It's like every movement, and it was incredibly graceful. It wasn't that sense of, you know, holding themselves back and being uptight and struggling with it. It was just that dropping down And being interested in the subtleties of experience. And so they moved with this tremendous delicacy and care and grace. Something like, you know, if you've ever seen the Japanese tea ceremony. It's really a very beautiful thing to take such care with what's being done. Of course, in Burma, I think it sometimes happened because the big sadhus, you know, the, the meditation masters, would often be standing there, you know, watching. That <laughs> may have motivated them somewhat. But even when they weren't watching, you know, there was that quality. It's not a very American way of doing things. You know, we're generally a much speedier culture, but a retreat gives us the, the chance. It's the time to take that kind of care and to really be that graceful and that interested in what you're doing it helps to make the day seamless instead of stops and starts in terms of the training in awareness and mindfulness when we slow down again very relaxed this is not to force it It's to drop back into the body and simply feel the sensations, the energy of the movements, of the activities. Then the whole day becomes a meditation. And it becomes very powerful because of that. One signal that I found very helpful to remind me when I'm not doing that is to keep an eye keep the mental eye out for the feeling of rushing. Which is a common feeling. And it's always rushing is the it's like a mindfulness bell. It's saying we're ahead of ourselves. Our mind is ahead of where we are in anticipation. And so it's as if our energy is toppling forward. So every time you feel like you're rushing, and you can be rushing, moving slowly. Mm -hmm. It has to do with that quality of balance and of interest. So every time there's a feeling of rushing, just pay attention to that. Notice it. Stop for a moment. Settle back. So to enjoy the possibility of slowing down. And really using that as a tool for learning how to listen to deeper levels within ourselves. It's tremendously helpful. And so I just would like to encourage you as much as possible. But do it in an easy, relaxed way. That's the key. It's not a struggle and it's not something to force. The other tool that I want to mention is something that we've all used to various extents at different times in our practice. And we feel it's helpful to have an understanding of it so that you can use it at appropriate times. And that is the skillful means of mental noting, where it's the acknowledgement with an actual note, like a soft word, a whisper in the mind, of what it is that's arising. in out, arise, fall, hearing, wandering, thinking. What the note does, it's really a check and a, on whether we're present or not, and it helps to sustain the attention. So if you're sitting and you notice that your mind is wandering a lot, you know, the three quarters of the sitting, you're lost in thought or daydream or planning, whatever. The noting could be a very helpful tool. It's a way of cutting through all that. And it's a support. It's an ally. And actually, this is happening, this is happening, this is happening, this is happening, this is happening. All just a single word, and very soft, so it's not elaborate descriptions. The noting begins to reveal a lot to us about things which we may not be noticing. Let me, I'll just preface everything I'm going to say now. I know f- many of you, perhaps most of you, are pretty experienced practitioners You know, have done a lot of retreat. And so it may be occurring to you, oh, this noting, that's, that's just in the beginning. Well, it is very helpful in the beginning. And it may be that that's really when you want to use it the most. But even for experienced practitioners, at the beginning of a retreat or at certain times, it really can help. Because rather than sit, maybe reasonably comfortably for the hour, but in a sinking, drifting state, that's not so helpful. It would be much more helpful for the deepening of practice to use this tool, to use this skillful means, and to acknowledge with a simple note, in, out, in, out, rising, falling, hearing, thinking, seeing, and to do it for some periods of time, and you will see that the mindfulness gets stronger. It also will reveal things that we may be missing. For example, as you are noting in, out, in, out, and the in is on the out-breath, and the out is on the in-breath, that will tell you that the mindfulness could use a little sharpening. Well, without the note being out of sync, you might not notice that the mindfulness needs a little sharpening. You know, So even the fact that the noting is not in sync is telling us something about the state of our minds, or the tone of the note, often can reveal our attitude about what's happening. You know, if you feel this very uh, impatient tone or restless tone, or so that's showing, that's illuminating. Oh yeah, my mind is like that at this time. When the concentration is strong, when the mindfulness is strong, and we really are in the rhythm, you know, and the attention is good, then we don't need it really quite so much. And it's fine to drop it at those times. But pay attention to whether the mind has really... in a state of mindfulness, or it's in that drifting state I mentioned. For experienced, for really experienced practitioners there's one more thing you can do with the noting that begins to point back to the very nature of mind itself. And that is, even if you're using it intermittently, at those times when you're using the noting, and again, this is more for the experienced practitioners rather than the beginners, begin to look back to see where the note is coming from. What is the note arising out of? You know, the note in, out. Well, what's the mind? What's the nature, the quality of the mind out of which the note is coming? So it's like tracing the note back. There's a wonderful Dharma book called Tracing Back the Radiance. And this is like tracing back to the radiance of the knowing mind. It's very interesting. As we begin to look back at the nature of knowing, at the nature of awareness, we discover some very important things. And that is that the mind, mindfulness, awareness, is not altered, is not affected by what it is that's arising and this is quite amazing to really experience you're sitting aware of the breath and aware of the pain in the knee the awareness is no different that knowing quality of the mind is no different its nature is simply to know its pain, fine its the breath, fine It's blissful feelings, fine. In all of those things, the knowing, the quality of the noting doesn't change. Well, that's pretty liberating. Because then we see, when we rest in awareness, we're not so caught in our habits of likes and dislikes, of attachment and aversion, because we see the awareness is not upset by unpleasantness. And the awareness doesn't grasp at what's pleasant. It's like a mirror. Its function is simply to know. It knows the breath. It knows the sensation. It knows the thought. Does a mirror choose what it reflects? And is it altered depending on what's reflected in it? No. The nature of the mirror is simply to reflect whatever comes in front. The nature of awareness the nature of our mind is to simply know. This is very liberating as we recognize that, as we see that, and as we rest in that awareness. This is what's called developing the mirror-like wisdom of the mind. And we start very simply with the breath, slowing down, feeling the sensations of the movement using the noting to really stay connected and even to see where the note comes from. So the teachings are simple, but they're not easy to do because of our habits of mind. So it takes a perseverance, it takes a commitment, it takes a certain energy Takes a certain effort. But when we hear the word effort, it often gets misinterpreted or misapplied because for many of us, we get caught up in effort and become striving and become struggle and forcing and not that helpful. Understanding, in Pali, the word is virya and that's the word that's often translated as effort, it takes a lot of practice to really understand what virya is. Because the Buddha talked a lot about it. He said virya is the source of all realization. It's an important quality. I feel that the last 35 years of my practice, or 30 years, however long, it's been an exploration of what virya means, of what right effort really is. And the Buddha pointed to it. You know, he was, he was speaking to a monk who had been a musician before he ordained. So he was talking about you know, tuning the strings of the lute in terms of getting the pitch just right. So he said, effort, this is the Buddha talking to this monk, effort when overstrung ends in agitation, when overlax ends in sloth and it's like we find ourselves going back and forth you know between agitation and sloth well our practice is just learning how to tune this instrument of our minds this instrument of awareness so that it's not overstrung and it's not overlax and so we play and we will go to one side or another that's how we find the balance A less common translation of virya, but one that has been really helpful for me in finding the balance, is not virya as effort, but virya as courage, the quality of courage. Because courage, it comes from the word for heart, kur. And it really means that vitality of heart or strength of heart, presence of heart. And so, courage, fury as courage, means the valor to be present. It's not the effort to get something, and that's where effort can often be misapplied. It's not that getting, it's the settling back and opening the courage to be present. Let me feel this. Let me be with this, whatever it is. So this quality of courage draws nourishment from two places. Maybe from many places, but I'll just mention two. One, it draws car- it draws nourishment from patience. There's a contemporary Uh, writer and poet Um, I just came across uh, his work and his name, I'm not even quite sure how to pronounce his name, Uh, Denis Saleh, S-A-L-E-H. And this is something he wrote and it just it just jumped out of me because it was so applicable to our understanding of practice. He said, I've been hard at work now longer than I like to remember on a novel set in ancient Egypt. I have found out how the how the pyramids were built slowly. Almost anything can be done it seems if one proceeds slowly enough. But we moderns simply cannot grasp this. And when I read this it it really was it felt so right. There's tremendous wisdom in the statement. Almost anything can be done if one proceeds slowly enough. But often when we look at a great task, you know, or a tremendously long journey, or achieving Buddhahood, we think, this is just too much. This is too overwhelming. This is too big. This is too far. I can't do this. Because we're impatient. Almost anything can be done if we proceed slowly enough, one step at a time, one breath at a time. When you come in and say it, you do not have to be mindful of an hour's worth of breaths. You have to be mindful of half a breath. Just, not even a whole breath. Just the in. And then just the out half breath at a time, that's all. We can do that. That's not beyond our, cap- our capability. One step at a time. If we're patient, one half breath at a time, the pyramids get built. They do. I know this deeply because when I started practicing I had zero concentration. I would sit, and my mind would wander for the whole hour. And then I'd get up and, oh, that was nice, that went quickly. (laughs) And it took a long time, I was not one of these naturals. There are, you know, maybe a half of 1% of the population is just, they have natural samadhi. They sit down, they're there. But most of us, it's a training. But the training is possible, but it's just doing it. It's the patience to do it. And then we see the development. So courage draws nourishment from that quality. Almost anything can be done if we proceed slowly enough, just one breath at a time. It also draws nourishment from interest, that quality of interest. and bringing, it's that willingness to look at the whole range of who we are. And this is the power of the Dharma. We sit down, sit and know you're sitting. The whole of the Dharma, the whole of yourself will be revealed. the whole range of body phenomena, the whole range of mind, emotions, feelings, stillness, silence. For a long time in my practice I was very judgmental about the negative things I saw. You know, just the unskillful, unwholesome states of mind and thoughts and feelings. So I would judge myself for having them. I judged them for being really bad. I didn't like it when my teachers or friends pointed them out to me. You know, I felt very judged. But then at a certain point, something changed you know, after going through that for quite a while. And what changed was well, I got to a point where I became really interested in seeing all of this stuff, come to the point where I would rather see the unwholesome stuff then not see it. Because if we don't see it, we just live it out. We act it out. When we do see it, that's what gives us the possibility, the opportunity to see through it and actually to be free. So as you're sitting and all the range, you know, I think it was Zorba the Greek or I think it was in that book which said, self-knowledge is always bad news.
1: <laughs> well,
0: as you sit here and get the bad news the bad news is good news <laughs> because it's better to see it than not to see it if you take interest what is this? how am I getting caught? how can I be free? that's the juice of the practice there's a line from a, an anonymous samurai poem which it's just one line it's a great line He said, this is part of a whole poem in which he's describing his spiritual journey. And this one line says, I make my mind my friend. If you did nothing in this retreat except that, that would be a great accomplishment. I make my mind my friend, whatever it is that's coming up. And we'll see everything, that's the point of coming. The point of the retreat is to see, is to open, is to become aware of the whole range, what's pleasant and what's unpleasant, what's skillful and what's unskillful, because it's only through seeing that we really can taste the freedom. There was a Japanese woman poet from, I don't know, the 11th century maybe, her name was Izumi. She wrote, the moon at dawn, just imagine the imagery, the moon at dawn, solitary, mid-sky, I knew myself completely, no part left out. This is a wonderful expression of our Dharma journey. I knew myself completely, no part left out. That takes courage, it takes the courage to be willing to see every part of ourselves. As we enter into this process, and as we proceed, a very profound realization starts to happen and that is the realization that all the work we do in this process of opening and awareness and awakening is not for ourselves alone, that it's really for the benefit of all beings. And this is a very this is a very critical shift in our journey as it begins to happen, when we really do realize this for ourselves, not just intellectually. You might wonder, well, how does sitting here watching our breath help anybody else? It's not totally obvious, the connection. In two very simple ways. In one way, the more we understand ourselves, the more we understand everybody else. Because although our stories are different, our backgrounds are different, our history is different, the nature of our mind and body is the same. And this was so apparent both in practicing in Asia and doing so much traveling. You know, different cultures, different backgrounds, the surface is different, even the content of people's thoughts. But the nature of pain, the nature of sorrow, the nature of happiness, the nature of joy, the nature of anger, of fear, of enthusiasm, these are universal. Anger is the same whether it's in Burma or Marin. And joy is the same, and suffering is the same, and freedom is the same. The more we understand ourselves, the more we understand each other, and this is in some way a great paradox from the depth of solitude on a retreat. From that place of understanding ourselves more, we actually feel more connected with everyone else. Out of the silence comes connectedness. The second way our practice benefits others, not only through understanding them, but in a very obvious way, if we are more loving, if we're kinder, if we're less judgmental, less angry, then the world is that much more loving and that much kinder and that much less suffering. You know, Our whole mind-body is an energy system that's vibrating, it's resonating. It cannot help but influence everyone around us. There's no way to prevent it. And we know it, you know, pretty easily. If you walk into a room and somebody's really angry, you know, you go into the room, you feel it. You can feel the vibrations in your body. We don't often tend to think that the opposite is also true. You know, that when somebody's really loving and peaceful, it has a like effect, but there are some few people who, with whom that's very obvious. Those of you, probably many of you, have had the experience of you know, being with somebody like the Dalai Lama. You just have to be in his presence. You know, the quality of his energy is so remarkable that it imprints. We get imprinted with that. So as we transform ourselves we are transforming the world. Our practice can't help but benefit others. So there's one last shift in practice that I want to mention. This first is the realization that the work we do at training our minds is not just for ourselves that we're doing it in order to benefit others, that it will. But there's one final little... whatever that is. (laughs) When we go from the realization that our practice will inevitably help others just as we become more loving and more peaceful and more accepting and less judgmental, can help but be of benefit when we go from the realization that it will inevitably help others to making the benefit of others the very motivation for our practice. It's like we bring that right to the beginning, not seeing it simply as an an inevitable consequence, but we actually make it the motivation. This is what in Buddhism is called bodhicitta. Bodhichitta is this motivation, this aspiration. May my practice be, may I awaken for the benefit and the happiness of all beings. Now this is a big thing. It's a very big thing. And we don't want to over-idealize it. We want to start very small. It's just planting a seed. Maybe at the beginning of the sitting, for those of you who feel connected to this it might be something like that aspiration may I be liberated for the benefit of all beings something that simple where we set the motivation I'm watching my breath I'm becoming mindful I'm becoming aware becoming wakeful may this be for the benefit of all beings and at the end of a sitting maybe this might dedicate the merit of the sitting. There's one very nice dedication that brings in this sense of Bodhijitta. May the merit of this practice be joined together with the merit of all the virtuous actions of the three times, of past, present and future. And I really like I like just like that sense of joining, my own little you know, a few drops of merit from the sitting to this ocean. May the merit of this practice be joined with the merit of all the virtuous actions of the three times. So we're kind of gathering it all up and then making an offering, dedicating it all to the welfare, the happiness, the liberation of all beings. These are just small seeds, really, really small seeds. Thoreau had something wise to say about a seed. Though I do not believe that a plant will spring up where no seed has been. I have great faith in a seed. Convince me that you have a seed there and I am prepared to expect wonders. So it's a very small seed of Bodhijetta that we're planting. Just... Just acknowledging that aspiration. May my practice, may my life be for the benefit of all beings. We plant it, we water it, just in a very simple way. Convince me that you have a seed there and I am prepared to expect wonders. And it happens, it's really the wonder of bodhicitta, the wonder of awakening. This is what we're doing here together, training our minds, coming to wakefulness, and holding it in this great aspiration. Let's sit for just a couple of minutes.